You'll see a lot of hundreds in test cricket, but you won't see too many gutsier ones than that. It's probably the bravest innings that I think I've ever seen. And certainly under the circumstances, it ranks very high. <laughs> I was with Dennis Lilly the other day, and we got talking about it. He, he reckons my innings was the greatest innings he ever saw against possibly the greatest attack that's ever been. Now, you think about it, Malcolm Marshall hadn't even come on the scene at that stage. So Hughes was seen as the, the golden-haired boy of the establishment, and, of course, the chapels were part of the revolution. There were divisions within the Australian side. There were divisions at cricket board level. There were many, many problems, both on and off the ground. It was a, it's certainly the most tumultuous period that I can remember. Completely understandable that way more than 38,000 people claim to have been at the MCG on December 26, 1981. For those that were really there, witnessed one of the most remarkable and dramatic days of Test cricket, which featured one of the most courageous centuries the game has ever seen and culminated in a truly epic moment between two cricket legends. Indeed, many of the well-lubricated crowd stayed long after play, singing and chanting in celebration as unexpectedly Australia took the upper hand on the first day of the first test against the all-powerful West Indies. I'm Anthony Hudson. Welcome to At The G. As we celebrate a return to watching sport and cricket at our great ground with the first of a two-part special on the Boxing Day Test of 1981 which featured truly memorable performances from two players from either side of Australia's cricketing divide of the time, Vice-Captain Kim Hughes and the legendary fast bowler Dennis Lilly. While Lilly's feats will be celebrated next time, in this episode we look at how an unforgettable MCG century fits into the tumultuous cricketing story of Kim Hughes an audacious and courageous stroke maker who at his best would use his feet and take on any attack, but whose tenure as Australian captain ended with a tearful resignation after he was broken by the relentless might of the West Indies and the fractious state of Australian cricket. My last 18 innings were against the West Indies. Eventually it got to a stage where I had no more petrol left in the tank because I just seemed to be fighting fighting the West Indies, fighting senior players within your team, and even in the nets, you know, it wasn't much fun. We'll hear from Kim's unlikely batting ally on that day at the G, swing bowler and tail ender Terry Alderman. I remember Joel Garner bowling a bouncer to me. Well, I thought it was a bouncer. and I ducked under it and it hit me in the back of the head, actually. And they appealed for LB because the ball just did not get up. And I just said to Kim... I don't think I'm going to be hanging around here for much longer. You better start playing a few shots. Uh, he just unleashed. And award-winning writer Mike Coward, OAM, who was in the press box at the MCG, 
Mike will remind us of the disunity of Australian cricket in the post-World Series era, as well as explaining how the West Indies became the power they did under Clive Lloyd. He got a lot of criticism because of the ruthless use of the fast bowlers. But it was very hard to deny him the fact that they'd been marginalised for a long time and they'd found a way through. And it was through the ruthlessness of the fast bowling. You might think Victoria and the MCG would have seemed a long way away for a young lad growing up in the late 60s in the wheat belt of Western Australia. But in fact, it was always in the mind of future Australian Test cricket captain Kim Hughes. But not quite as you might imagine. Certainly as a young boy growing up in the bush, we used to have fancy dress balls and I go along as a footballer wearing the big V. I don't know why on earth I wore the big V, but football was really my passion, you know, because they had the grand final there and we had a lot of West Australians playing over in the VFL. So that was my sort of first memory of, of the MCG, because that's where you, you, you played the great game at the G, more so than, than cricket, actually, Anthony. And you were a talented junior footballer, weren't you, representing WA in junior teams from a young age? In the under-18 competition in Claremont District, I, I won the medal as the best player in, in the competition. But I knew I, I couldn't run out of sight in the dark night. I played a lot in the centre. I was a natural left footer, but could kick both feet. And they were just starting to really get involved in pre-season with weights and stuff like that. And I wasn't prepared to give cricket up in order to go to the gym. I've never been one keen on weight and uh, things like that. And then at the age of 18 at Teachers Training College, I broke my neck in a freak accident. And we were in the rec room and talking about one another's girlfriends. And I said something about this bloke's girlfriend. He didn't like it. So, and I was sitting on a trestle table and he grabbed me by the feet and flipped me over the other side head first. And I couldn't get my hands behind my neck. So I broke my C2 vertebra. So I spent three or four months in a Shedden Park Rehabilitation Hospital. Um, so um, whilst I was unlucky to have that, I was very lucky to be in a situation where I knew what it was like. You know, had something taken away from you, the ability just to run and play and skip and jump, all those sorts of things. So uh, so that was the end of, of, my, of my football career. You played shield cricket in the 1975-76 season and were actually out on the field for Australia at the MCG not that long after. That must have given you a taste of things. Uh, Jeff Thompson was involved in an accident with Alan Turner at Adelaide Oval. And anyway, I was at a family function and I got a phone call from Cricket Australia to say that I'd been picked to come over and play at the MCG against Pakistan. And I, I was going to be 12th man. So uh, I still get shivers thinking about it. You know, someone got injured on the field and out I came as, as 12th man. And Dennis Lilly, Pakistan had some very, very outstanding players, Mushtaq Muhammad and Zahira Bass and Majid Khan and Imran Khan and these sorts of players. And Pakistan had got into a really good position. They were on a three to 200 or whatever. But then Dennis, as only Dennis could do, sort of got a few wickets and Mushtaq Muhammad came in. And I can still remember this. And I was at mid-off and the crowd at this stage, you know, chanting out, kill, kill, kill. <laughs> as Dennis got closer and closer, Mushtaq's eyes got bigger and bigger. And he got hit on the pads and he walked. He didn't wait for the umpire's decision. He, there was no way known he was going to stay there. But the roar of the crowd and the adrenaline, Anthony, you know, I just wanted to literally kill something. <laughs> I wanted to run through brick walls. It was just get me to do something. So I can imagine what it'd be like in a footy game, you know, where there is physical 
contact, but it was just absolutely electric. I've always remembered that, just to be out there in the G, and particularly when you had someone like Dennis. You made your test debut in England just before World Series cricket started and then became a regular for Australia while it was on. So you got some experience playing at the G. Was it special to you then or just like any other ground? Oh, no. You, you know that you know all the great footballers have been there and all the great cricketers have graced the thing. So when you used to walk up the stairs to go into the change rooms, and it was quite unique in those days because you'd have to go down two flights of stairs. To, to get to where the change rooms were. But the, it was just one of those things where you thought, well, this is where all the chants are. Wow, what a what a buzz. What, what's that like and what was that like at the MCG in those days in the early, late 70s and, and early 80s? When you came out of the change rooms and walked down the slope to go onto the ground, the people would be standing and they'd be all saying, come on, yeah, go get into a Kim or Greg Chapel or whoever it may be. And there was always a gentleman at the gate and he'd open the gate for you and wish you good luck. And then you'd come out and you'd swing your bat around about five or ten times, look up into the sun and get blinded again. I, I did that because I saw Ian Chappell do it one day and I thought, well, it's good enough for him, good enough for me. But there is no other ground. Maybe Lords is something where you think, that, you know, this is history. This is where all the greats, and the great thing about the MCG is because I came from Western Australia and I love my footy. It was not only just the cricketers, but, you know, it was the, it was the footballers. And the other thing for a young boy growing up, it wasn't a real great West Australian flavour until Dennis and Rod, you know, became household names. And then the rest of us, and at one stage we had, I think, seven West Australians playing in the Australian eleven which is as many as anybody's ever had. And, and you were, even though as a West Australian, you felt home at the MCG. With the likes of Greg Chappell, Rod Marsh and Dennis Lilly all playing Kerry Packers World Series cricket, the much weakened Australian test side struggled badly on the field and quickly went through several captains as a result. Hughes became skipper towards the end of the 1978-79 season, after which the two warring parties negotiated a peace settlement. Hughes would lead the last establishment team to India before reunification. I took over from Graham Yallop. He was injured. That was in World Series days against Pakistan at the Wacker. And then the team was picked to go to India. And we had 15 or 16 of us, and all very, very young. But I went over there and I've come back with the most number of runs that anybody ever scored by an Australian in a tour of India. So I was very, very successful individually. And we only lost the Series 2-0, which was an outstanding effort, given uh, uh, the uh, the age demographic that we had. Mike Coward is a long-time cricket journalist, writer and commentator who remembers the massive divisions right through the game in Australia caused by World Series cricket. While the game was notionally unified, those ructions remained and spilled over into the team particularly manifesting around the captaincy. Greg Chappell returned as skipper, but was mostly unavailable for overseas tours, with Hughes preferred as his deputy, much to the chagrin of those from the World Series camp who believed the more experienced Rod Marsh should have been the one to step up. It's the most tumultuous period, of course, probably in Australian cricket history. 
I suppose it would compare with the body line of uh, 1932-33 for the absolute tumult that existed. There were divisions within the Australian side. There were divisions at cricket board level. The personalities, of course, Kimberly, John Hughes and Gregory Stephen Chappell, sort of alternate captains. There were many, many problems, both on and off the ground. It was a, it's certainly the most tumultuous period that I can remember. And then I was made, you know, vice-captain of the Australian side under Greg when the reunification. But the biggest disappointment was Western Australia made me vice-captain under Rod Marsh. Now, I was going to be Australian vice-captain. The thing should have been that I should have been made West Australian captain and Rod a lieutenant so that he could help and, and support and nurture me and that. But it, it didn't. And it was a very, very unpleasant time. So Hughes was seen as the, the golden-haired boy of the establishment, and of course the chapels were part of the revolution. And that's fundamental, and it was based on that, that, those conflicts as well as the personality uh, difficulties with those in Western Australia. I always remember Alan Jeans, the great Alan Jeans and late Alan Jeans, used to say, I don't expect you to like me, but I do expect you to respect the position I hold. And it wasn't like a political party putting hand up and saying, well, vote for me, vote for me. The Australian cricket selectors said, well, mate, you're the captain, he's the vice-captain, and that's it. End of story. And then even then, in going to England in 81, which wasn't, well, it wasn't a successful tour at all, Greg had an input into the selection of the team. I wasn't even asked. Now, Greg wasn't coming. He was our best player, arguably as good as any other player in the world, with the exception of Bradman. So, uh, and we left Bruce Yardley and Bruce Laird behind, um, and we got beaten. So it, it was it was a very very unpleasant, and in the end, I just had no more petrol left in the tank. But the great thing is now, Rod and I and Dennis are really really good friends. Well, Mike, no wonder Australia struggled with all the divisions that were going on, and their stars were getting towards the end, I guess. And probably more than anything, the West Indies were just so good. You spent a lot of time covering them, and in, in fact, spending time with them. What made them so good, apart from the obvious? It was such a different world. I mean, the West Indians were by far um, the most self-disciplined team playing test cricket at the time. They were the best dressed team at the time. And Clive Lloyd, they were always immaculate in their maroon blazers and, and their, their, their cricket gear. They always were exemplary in the way they behaved. Um, and of course, they enjoyed enormous popularity from the Australian crowds. Tony Cozier would come with them. He was the voice, of course, a voice familiar to all of us who love cricket and cricket broadcasting. He was quite a voice and a wonderful writer on the game. And, uh, and he used to love visiting Australia. And um, the Australian cricket, uh, cricket follower always embraced them and certainly embraced this team. And what about Clive Lloyd as captain? He got a lot of criticism because of the, the ruthless use of the, uh, the fast bowlers and their very slow over rates. He got a lot of criticism for that. But it was very hard to deny him the fact that they, um, they'd been marginalised for a long time and they'd found a way through. And, and it was through the, uh, the ruthlessness of the fast bowling. And of course, they had a couple of fairly handy batsmen to boot, of course, not to mention IVA Richards. Um, so I was always quite sympathetic to Lloyd and Lloyd's philosophy 
And uh, one of the most difficult jobs in world cricket is to captain the West Indies. People forget that the West Indies are a, a disparate group of, uh, of nations, this vast archipelago. They all speak a different patois. Um, and it's very difficult to, to get um, a united front, as it were. And Lloyd took the view that uh, he would always um, mix and match the players in their rooms. They would never be Barbadians uh, in sharing a room or Trinidadians sharing a room. It would be a, a Trinidadian with somebody from St. Vincent. It could be an Antiguan with a Guyanese or a Jamaican with somebody from St. Kitts. So he broke up uh, to try and get that sense of unity. And that's what Lloyd did, and he did it very successfully. And hence, they became a, a united and very powerful side and had a tremendous amount of respect for each other and for each other's differences, the different cultures from the different islands and the different histories. It, it was very impressive captaincy. Kim, for those of us that grew up in the 80s as cricket fans, we look back on that West Indian team with so much affection. The batting with Greenwich and Haynes at the top, and of course, Viv Richards, a little later, Richie Richardson. There was Lloyd Gomes, who of course had a slightly different background and played in a different way. And there was the swashbuckling wicketkeeper, Bat Jeff Dujon, who actually made his debut in that Boxing Day game in 81. And then there were the bowlers you had to face. For that test... Michael Holding, Andy Roberts, Joel Garner, and the unpredictable Colin Croft. It's scary just saying their names. <laughs> I was with Dennis Lilly the other day, and we got talking about it. He, he reckons Moynings was the greatest thing he's ever saw against possibly the greatest attack that's ever been. Now, you think about it, Anthony, Malcolm Marshall hadn't even come on the scene at that stage. Now, he spent two years as an underling, you know, learning from these great players, um, and I mean, Garner was six foot eight or seven. Crop six foot six. Andy Roberts was about a six. You know, Collingwood six foot or thereabouts, and um, Michael Holding six foot four. But they're all a bit different in their actions. And and they know, you know, the West Indies got done sometimes on the wickets really turned. But when the ball varies in bounce, that that is when the quick bowlers are the hardest to face because you've got to stand there and play. The West Indies had beaten Australia 2-0 in their first Test Series straight after World Series cricket ended in 1979. That included a 10-wicket drubbing at the MCG. And so for Boxing Day 1981, the Windies were the hot favourites against the home team. Added to this was an Australian batting collapse against Pakistan at the MCG just a fortnight before in a loss which also dented their confidence in the condition of the pitch, which was a point of much contention at the time, with Greg Chappell one of the most ardent critics. Chappell won the toss and battered on Boxing Day 1981, but the Aussies made a disastrous start, with Bruce Laird and Chappell himself early victims of Michael Holding. The skipper made a golden duck, and it was two for four. Chappell, who is one of Australia's greatest batsmen of all time, was in the early stages of an infamous run of low scores, in which he was quoted as saying he wasn't batting long enough to be batting badly. That line could have also applied to Graham Wood on that boxing day, for he too was soon back in the pavilion, caught Murray, bowled Roberts for three. The ever-dangerous West Indian speedsters had their tails up on an unpredictable wicket as Kim Hughes made his way out to bat. Andy Roberts now getting into the act by claiming his first wicket in Australia 
three for eight. Laird, Chapel, and Wood all gone for eight runs. Well, we lost early wickets, and I was batting at five or six. But I remember, you know, getting to 30 or 40, and I then decided, I thought, well, if I'm going to stay here for a while, I've got to play a few shots, because sooner or later, the wicket's going to do something, go on the ground or jump up at you, and you're going to get out. While Hughes at least began to pick up some runs, around him, the wickets continued to tumble. Border for four, Dirk Wellham for 17, and suddenly, it was five for 59, with holding particularly threatening. And I thought, if I could get them to bowl at me, rather than the stumps, you know, I've got a chance. And I think having made that decision, it's amazing when you have that faith or that courage, whatever you like to, to do it, to take it on. It's amazing how then, uh, you know, luck goes your way because it's just that, that, that positive thought. And they started to bowl at me. And being a Western Australian born and bred, all West Australian bats, well, most, can play well off the back foot, you know, because of the whacker. The Australian vice-captain did receive some support from Rod Marsh and Bruce Yardley, who both made 21 as Hughes went on the counter-attack. Firm straight drive, that's a, a wonderful shot. Straight back past the bowler for four runs. Second boundary in the over for Hughes. And now camera, our close-up shot as Sandy Roberts was coming in on Kim Hughes. You could see him talking to himself, so telling himself to concentrate. And that he did on that occasion to perfection. Lovely straight drive, right down the ground. And there's four more. And that's his 50. You could say that was a lucky shot, but the innings hasn't been lucky. It's been a triumph of... Uh, Good old-fashioned guts and determination. And he thoroughly deserves that half-century. It's one of the best he'll have played. But hopes of a full rescue seemed to disappear as Lilly and Lawson came and went cheaply and the Aussies were 9 for 155 with Hughes approaching 70 and there was little faith in Terry Alderman's ability in such circumstances. Most people, if you're back down the list and you can't back, you call it a rabbit. Well, Terry was a ferret because he went in after the rabbits. <laughs> so I welcomed Terry, as you do, you know, and said, good luck. And as I turned around, I said, geez, you're going to bloody need a day because Terry couldn't bat. I'd known Kim since uh, since he was 12. He played uh, under-14s with my brother. He's three years older than me. So I knew Kim from way back. And, uh, you know, it was, it's, if you've got a batsman at the other end as a tail ender, you just want to have to hang in there and survive. We hung in there, you know, and all Terry did, and they went through him, around him, all that sort of thing, and we put on 30-odd. I remember Joel Garner bowling a bouncer to me. Well, I thought it was a bouncer, and I ducked under it, and it hit me in the back of the head, actually. It just missed the helmet. And they appealed for LB because the ball just did not get up. And I just said to Kim, I don't think I'm going to be hanging around here for much longer. You better start playing a few shots. Well, he'd already played a few good ones, but uh, he just unleashed. Well, that's cracked. He really hit that one. That's four runs. Well, that's a magnificent shot. It fairly raced to the boundary. Again, Hughes showing his intelligence. Waiting for the ball wide of the off stump and then unleashing that enormously powerful back foot square cut come drive. That was my first year back in Melbourne with the Melbourne Age. And I was down there with Peter McFarlane 
and we were covering that test match and that was truly extraordinary innings. Hughes at his best could play some of the most extraordinary shots, the cover driving, the straight driving and when he was at his best he really was imperious and that as you say against a phenomenal attack. But I'm absolutely convinced at this stage is that if I hadn't have changed my thinking we would have got out and been pulled out for 150, 160 and it's incredible when you think that it, once you make that mindset change, it's amazing how quickly things can turn around. And they started the bowl a bit shorter. I started to run down the wicket. Fortune favours the brave. When you look back on that era, it was the players that uh, actually took the attack up to the four-pronged fast bowlers. But if you attacked them and you got away with it, you know, you had a half a chance, I think. It, it seemed to rattle uh, the fast bowlers, somebody playing a few hook shots or flicking the ball uh, over the slips or whatever. So, uh, fantastic batting by Kim. Alderman somehow found a way to survive, and the idea that Hughes could possibly reach three figures gradually went from fanciful to a real possibility. He used his feet to mix up the West Indies bowlers' line and length and manipulated the strike to minimise the exposure of the tailender who knew he had a job to do. As Hughes moved into the 90s, the tension around the MCG grew. And the attendance here at the MCG, 38,755, and each one of them would dearly love to see a Kim Hughes century. He's on 96, just one boundary away from that three-figure. Good shot. Fine shot and a great hundred, that. You'll see a lot of hundreds in test cricket, but you won't see too many gutsier ones than that. Nine for 198. Kim Hughes, a level 100. And there haven't been too many innings for teams where a player has dominated so much. A hundred out of 198. When I did get the 100, there were a number of people that came on at the ground. And that was quite a unique thing at the MCG. And I don't think it's ever been done again because they had the security guards and no one ran onto the ground. But such was the involvement and excitement that they did. And I think once one or two jumped, the rest did. So I walked away from the wicket because I didn't want people running on the wicket. And people were coming up and patting me on the back and all that. And then they were very happy to, to get off the ground um, so, yeah, and, and, and I don't think it's ever happened again as far as cricket is concerned. Certainly it might have happened with footy, but certainly not with cricket. How did the West Indies players react to your 100? Well, I can still remember Colin Croft, uh, who never said a word, but what a fantastic bowler. He was coming down towards me. I thought, God, he's not going to hit me now, is he? And he, all he said was, well played, man, well played. And that, that was it. And all the West Indians came up and congratulated me. And then as I walked off, the, the ground, you know, the people were all applauding and yeah. With the Hughes 100 achieved, Alderman was dismissed for 10 and Australia all out for 198. It set up an incredible 40 minutes with the ball for the Aussies, which of course will be the subject of part two of this series. And it's a bit like for those of your listeners who follow the footy, you know, if you're five goals behind with two or three minutes before three quarter time and you kick a goal or two, you come into the three-quarter time huddle a bit buoyed. With all that was going on inside and outside the camp, it was a triumph for Hughes, for no one could deny his superb innings. 
Indeed, decades later, former Australian skipper Ian Chappell, who had been one of Hughes' strongest critics as leader, rated Hughes' century as the fourth most memorable hundred in a list he compiled for ESPN Crick Info. And, and the courage, I mean, he took the West Indies quickies on. He pulled them and he hooked them. Uh, and it was an innings of great bravery, great daring, uh, because you... Not only do you need the physical courage when the ball, some are kicking up and some are staying down, that's, that's a batsman's worst nightmare, particularly when he's up against genuine pace. But it takes a lot of um, uh, mental fortitude to, in those circumstances to take the bowlers on. Um, and that's exactly what Kim Hughes did. It's probably the bravest innings that I think I've ever seen. And certainly under the circumstances, it ranks very high. And I think Wisden ranked it as the ninth best innings ever played in Test cricket. Now I don't know how they how they do that, but just to get a hundred and then be not out was just in, just incredible. It's something I'll never ever forget. Hughes continued to be Australian captain only for international tours and would go back to being vice-captain at home, although Greg Chappell played his last home season under Hughes in 1983-84. But even when Chappell retired, the scars of division remained and would eventually wear Hughes down. His batting and mental state not helped by consecutive test series against the West Indies away and at home, and the runs dried up. My last 18 innings were against the West Indies, you know, and it was uh, Marshall or, or, or Garner um, or Holding or Croft. Eventually, it got to a stage where, you know, I had no more petrol left in the tank because I just seemed to be fighting, you know, whether it was Ian Chapel or Todd, fighting the West Indies, fighting senior players within your team. And even in the nets, you know, it wasn't much fun. And any of the players that were around in those days would know that, mate, I'd be lucky to survive in the nets with a number of bounces and things like that. It was hard enough to do that out in the middle, let alone in your own practice nets. So it wasn't much fun. I was beginning to to change uh, my my personality in that I was a very caring sort of softy, if you like. Um, I don't think I had a nasty bone in my, in my body. But what began to happen... I thought for me to survive all the constant innuendo and stuff, I thought I'd have to put a big tough shell around me. But then what happens is nothing gets in but nothing gets out and you become the glass is now half empty. And, and, and that happens and you start to withdraw. Um, you get very defensive. Uh, you come home and you walk in the door. We had three boys under three. We had twin boys and another boy and life was busy. And your wife would say, well, how, how was cricket, darling? Like most blokes, you'd say, oh, I'm all right, I'm all right. You know, blokes don't go to the hospital until they break their neck or do this or do that. I was beginning to become a person I didn't like. I didn't like to be fighting with people and and arguing or whatever it was. Um, And I couldn't see any light at the end of the tunnel. So I thought, well, I've I've had enough um, and decided to call it quits. While his time as captain and as an Australian player ultimately ended in disappointing fashion, it's important to put in context the difficulties Kim Hughes faced purely because of the timing of his career. In all, he managed 70 test matches, scored over 4,400 runs and made nine centuries, and only eight of his 28 games as captain were on home soil.
and he did produce one of cricket's most amazing hundreds on the game's biggest day of the year. One last thing about that hundred, Kim. I was sagged to see there was only 38,000 people at the MCG that day. That just didn't ring true to me with my memory of the day. You're right. When I read that, I thought if someone said to me ages ago, well, how many people there? I would have said, oh, 55 or 60, 65. But when I read about it, it's only 30. I thought, that all. You know, it's only just over a third full. But it just didn't feel like that. And it is amazing. When I go back to Victoria for whatever, the number of Victorians, I'm more recognised over there than here in Western Australia. Every big, well, most people come up and say, Hughes, I was there that day. I'm sure there wasn't a million people there at the ground, but they were because uh, through television. um, You know, they were there uh, because of the occasion. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I get a real buzz about going back to Melbourne, but particularly at the MCG, the home of Australian sport. Former Australian captain Kim Hughes reminiscing about his finest ever Test Century, which set the stage for an epic last session, which will be the focus of part two, when a fever pitch MCG crowd urged on Dennis Lilly in his battle with the great Viv Richards late on day one in the Boxing Day Test of 1981. Thanks for being with us, and of course, a big thanks to Kim Hughes. Also, Terry Alderman and Mike Coward for their memories of the day. Cricket Australia for the use of the Channel 9 audio, and ESPN Crick Info and Radio SEN for extra audio. Don't forget to subscribe to the show, and feel free to leave a review whenever you get your podcasts. I'm Anthony Hudson. How good is it to have sport and cricket back at the gym?